Okay, wish me luck tonight. I have had two false starts in recording this because my tongue seems to say words that are not the words that are in my brain. You are probably seeing this episode a day later than you are used to seeing it. There's a simple reason for that. The show and the format of the show has really been developing and blossoming. And it has now blossomed into what seems to continuously be about a two-hour episode. Before I was doing two-hour episodes, I would sit down and edit and post. So my normal pattern would be record, edit, post, all on the same night. When you record a two-hour episode, <laughs> you sit down and edit a two-hour episode, that becomes a little different. Last week, I finished editing and I uploaded the episode and it was time to go to bed. <laughs> it was literally the entirety of my night from after dinner until the time that I went to bed was podcasting. That's okay, but I like to have a little wind down time. So I am going to be giving myself a little wind down time. I'm still going to record on the same night, but I'm going to do my editing the next day. So you're going to see these episodes a day later. I was posting them late Tuesdays, but mostly you weren't seeing them till Wednesday because you know, you're probably asleep or watching television. You're going to start seeing them on Thursdays instead, but they'll be up late Wednesday. So if you, if you really are chomping at the bit, is it chomping at the bit or champing at the bit? I believe it's actually champing at the bit, even though that sounds weird. All right. I want to talk a little bit about caliper. So caliper is the CBD powder that I've been taking since May. I love the powder. The powder is wonderful. It's the easiest CBD I've ever taken because I just sprinkle it into tea at the end of the night and then I get my CBD. And the CBD I take mostly for anxiety, curbing anxiety. Even when I don't have anxiety, it's nice to have that buffer. But I've also had uh, soreness, like back and neck problems, a lot from repetitive strain of sitting the wrong way at my desk and from having continuous nights of bad sleep. So CBD is something that I like to have as a daily, I guess you could say a supplement. And I've been using Calper, as I said, since May, and it's been doing a great job, but there's been this little friction, this little thing that's been bugging me all along. The timing of their deliveries suck. If you have anxiety or you have body problems, body pain, inflammation, you're taking CBD for, that means that you want it every day. You want this in your bloodstream every day. You don't want gaps where, oh, I don't have CBD for a day or two, and that means I suffer for a day or two. You just don't want that. And that seems like something that a CBD company should understand. Unfortunately, Calper, in my experience, doesn't seem to understand that. And this is the friction. Every package that I get from them includes a 30-day supply. It's got 30 little individual pouches of powder. And that means three things. That means they know how much I have, they know when I will run out, and they know how long it takes for me to receive a delivery. And you would think that this also means that they would know when to send me a delivery. Wrong. They don't. Almost every month, it arrives a day or two after I've run out, which means almost every month I have to go a day or two without the CBD. And this just seems like such a simple thing that they could fix and that they should know is wrong, but they haven't. The easy way to change that would be to just send it 
three, four, maybe five days earlier. I don't have a problem with still having three or four packages or packets left when I receive the new package. And like I said, as a CBD company, they should understand this because it's the business that they're in. It's not a big deal. I don't have a terrible, terrible pain that's killing me. You know, this isn't like ibuprofen that I have to have after dental surgery or something more powerful that people like cancer patients have to take. I'm not in a situation like that, but it's still a little thing that's been bothering me. And it came to a head this week because my package was meant to arrive on Monday, which I actually needed it on Saturday. So even if it arrived on Monday, I would have been one day without. But guess what? It did not arrive on Monday. And do you know why it didn't arrive on Monday? Because Caliper, which is a company in Colorado, which is where so much CBD seems to come from, instead of sending it to the left side of the country, they sent it to the right side of the country. I don't mean politically. I mean, looking at a map direction-wise, they're in the middle, not even the middle. They're closer to me. I'm in California. But they didn't send it to me here in California. They sent it to Florida. Yeah, they sent my package to Florida. And I thought about this. I'm like, oh, maybe instead of seeing CA, they saw FA, so they sent it to Florida. But FA is not the abbreviation of Florida. FL is the abbreviation of Florida. And it has a zip code that shouldn't happen. So I emailed them and I got a response and they blamed it on the postal service. Like everyone seems to. When something goes wrong, they always blame the postal service. But here's the thing. I'm not sure that I believe them. Considering the mild incompetence that they've had with delivery as a whole, I'm just, I'm not believing it. And this isn't just whining, you know, I'm not Veruca Salt, but I want it now, daddy. This is a question of trust. When we're talking about supplements, trust is everything. How do I know that what a company says is in something is actually in it? Trust. And trust is a cascade. A little minor delivery incompetence erodes a little bit of that trust. And then there's a screw up. And they tell me that postal service did it. Well, because my trust is already a little bit eroded, I don't really believe them. So it's already cascading. And because I don't believe them now, I'm more likely to question whether what I'm getting in those little packages is actually what I'm supposed to be getting in those little packages. You understand? Certain companies, trust can be a more flexible thing. Your iPhone only does 90% of what it says it does. That's okay. It's not that big of a deal. You know, it's not life endangering in most cases. But when you're talking about things that you're putting in your body, you can't allow that trust to erode at all. That your number one priority as a supplement company should be engendering trust. So am I going to stick with them? Probably not. When I first started putting down the notes to talk about this, I wasn't sure. You know, maybe, maybe not. I was actually leaning towards sticking with it because you know what? It's always easier to stick with something. Less friction. You don't have to do as much. But then I sat down and I started actually doing the numbers. It's $45 for a 30-day supply of caliper. And in each package you get, each serving size, I guess you could say, is 20 milligrams of CBD. Charlotte's Web is one of the most trusted CBD companies. I think they're one of like the first. 
It's called Charlotte's Web because if I remember correctly, they started making the CBD because there was a girl named Charlotte. I don't want to say she had cancer, but there was something wrong with her. And CBD ended up helping this girl named Charlotte. And that's why they called it Charlotte's Web. Obviously, they picked up the web part from the children's book. But if I go to that company who is more trustworthy because they've been around longer and I get, instead of powder, I get gummies. I can get 20 milligram CBD gummies, which are exactly same milligrams as the powder packages. And I can get the sleep gummies, which not only come with 20 milligrams of CBD, but three milligrams of melatonin. You know, melatonin, like I was just praising last week when I was talking about the Ollie gummies that I've been taking that have been making going to bed a dream. So that means if I get the 90 gummy package, which is a 45 day supply, you take two gummies every day, that's $57, 45 days, 30, 45 days, 30. Okay. So there's a price difference there, but there's also 50% more in this package. If I subscribe and tell them to just automatically send it to me every month, it's only $46. So for the same price, plus or minus a dollar, I get the same milligrams of CBD. I get 50% more. I get 45 days instead of 30 days. And I get a daily dose of melatonin, which means that I can also stop buying Oli. I could, for $90, have a three-month supply of Charlotte's Web, or I could, for $135, have a three-month supply of Caliper CBD alone without the melatonin. In addition, if I don't buy the Oli, that's $17 less a month as well. So it's really the difference between like spending $90 and like $220. I think I've made a decision. So I think Caliper, you're, you're out. Sorry, but that trust, trust is so important. All right, let's talk a little bit about shaving hair. I've had a beard for I think 15 years and I just shaved it off a couple of weeks ago. I still have the, I think it's officially, what is this called? It's called the Van Dyke. It's the thing where it's just on your chin. You know that it's not a goatee because a goatee includes a mustache. It's the goatee minus the mustache. It's the beatnik. I'm just down to chin hair, which means every couple of days I'm shaving. And now that I'm shaving more consistently than I've had in like 15 years, I'm starting to notice how much razors suck. In particular, these fancy razors that they're always selling us, like with five, 15, it seems like they keep adding more and more blades every year. I don't like the multiple blade system. I never really have. When I was shaving on a more consistent basis, what I used to do is go buy those plastic, like cheap, thick razors that only had one blade. And those worked a lot better. Unfortunately, that's a lot of plastic to be just throwing out into the world. So I don't want to do that. But one of the reasons I hate the multi-blade system is I don't feel like it cuts that close. You know, it always claims like it gets closer, but I don't think it does. And on top of that, you shave, you wash off your blade, you shave, you wash off your blade, you shave, you wash off your blade. And then you look and there's hair stuck between all those little tiny blades. You know, you got five blades and they're just, it's just jammed with hair. And unless you've got a pressure washer, you're not getting that hair out of there. So over time, the blade might still be sharp but it becomes useless because it's just clogged up and it just looks disgusting. And I don't want to put that thing near my face because I'm cutting off the hairs to get rid of it. So I just don't want to deal with that 
crap anymore. And I've tried everybody. Bick, Gillette, Schick, or is it Schick? Or Stick, or whatever the hell their name is. And Harry's. And what's the other one? Dollar Shave Club. I tried it all. I just don't like those kind of razors. So I've been looking at all their alternatives. For a little while, I was thinking, hey, maybe I'll just go old school and I'll get a straight razor. Then I started like looking at stuff about straight razors and I'm like, I'm trusting myself a little more than I want. (laughs) I don't want to have to be that diligent when cutting because it's very easy to cut yourself with a straight razor. So there's an in-between stage. It's called the safety razor. And the safety razor is, it has like a sort of dome at the top almost. It's flat, but then the top part is rounded. There's two ways to open it up. There's either the ones where you unscrew the handle and then the head comes off, or there's other ones where you twist the bottom of the handle and the top opens like a butterfly or like Tesla doors. (laughs) Just opens up. And inside is a razor blade. Not the, like the razor blades, the single-sided ones, but a double-sided razor blade. And that is called a safety razor. It's a safety razor because even though there's a razor blade in there, when you're shaving, there are guards. So you're not just running a straight razor across your face. Still easier to cut yourself than it is to cut yourself with one of these mock Gillette 45s or whatever, but not anywhere near as easy as with a straight razor. So started looking into safety razors. Is this something I want to do? Is this direction I want to go down? It's also super cheap. You spend like 40 to maybe $100 on the actual metal thing that you're going to keep forever. But then a package of 10 razor blades is like $4. And that's like a month of shaving at least. So that's an advantage. But, you know, still a little bit, a little scary. These fancy razors that we're talking about, you know, the Bix, all that stuff. They have flexible heads, which means that the head is on a pivot, which means that when you pull down, as you move to the contours of your face, the blade goes with the contours of your face. So therefore you don't have to do much work to not cut your skin. Unless you push too hard, you're pretty much not going to cut yourself. But a safety razor doesn't have a flexible head. So first of all, when you shave, you have to hold your razor at a 30 degree angle, do short little strokes. And then you have to adjust as you move to different parts of your face. So you have to be a lot more alert. Not necessarily because you're going to cut yourself, but just because you're not going to be shaving. If you're not at the right angle, you're not going to be getting the hair. So you have to set the angle. It's manual in that way. And it's scary because even though there are guards and it's called a safety razor, razor blades are fucking sharp. A naked razor blade is not something you just leave on a counter. That's just disaster waiting to happen. So I found this video on YouTube called Tutorial. Learn how to shave with a safety razor by executive shaving. First of all, I am in love with the process of shaving cream, the lathering bowl, and a brush. You have a bowl. You put in some shaving cream, but the shaving cream looks like cream. You know, it looks like lotion, not like foam, right? And you put it in there and it's, it's kind of thick. You have to add a little bit of water. Then you take the brush and the brush is, it's like this bristly, like it's like the the tip of an animal's tail, which is probably what it's made from. You move that around and you move it around in the lather bowl and around and around and around. You're lathering up and you're making this little bit of cream into enough shaving cream to shave. 
Here's the thing that I never understood. This is real shaving cream. What we're talking about here is real shaving cream. What we buy at the store, the gel and these foams and stuff like that, that's not shaving cream. And that's something I always wondered. Why don't they call it shaving foam instead of shaving cream? And the truth is they should be calling it that because that's what it is. Shaving cream is this stuff. It's almost like putting on clown makeup. That's kind of how thin it is. It looks like more like white clown makeup. So I watched him go through this whole process and I'm like, okay, that part of it, I love. I, I just like the idea of sitting there and moving stuff in the bowl. So that's a plus. Here's something else I learned from his video. Never use alcohol-based aftershave. You know, like every aftershave you've ever used in your life, or at least someone my age has, never do that. Because when you shave, you're already removing oils from your skin, protective oil from your skin. I don't know if that's because of the shaving cream or the actual process of running a razor across your skin. Either way, you're pulling this oil off of your skin, which is important. And then if you add alcohol to that, you're, you're double drying your skin, which as you can imagine when you're dealing with pores and stuff, it's not a good idea. So you need to actually be putting on an aftershave that is more moisturizing. I think they have ones called aftershave gels. I think what he uses here is like an aftershave oil. Either way, he's showing the products that he makes, but you can easily find them from anybody. But there's something that he does in here that I've never seen heard or even thought of when it comes to shaving before he does multiple passes i'm 44 years old never heard of this in my life so he lathers up puts the shaving cream on his face takes the razor and he shaves so when he's on his face and cheeks he's going down going with the grain down and then on the neck and then under the chin he's going up because the hair there grows up so he's going with the grain that way and then when he's done and he shaved his whole face he lathers up again, and now he shaves sideways. So you're going up and down before, now you're going left to right or right to left. And then when he shaves his whole face that way, he lathers up again. And this time he shaves against the green. So underneath the neck, he's going down. On the face, he's going up. And this gets the closest shave. And this is not from the video because I tried this today and I'm shocked. I'm shocked at what this does. Because it's been almost 12 hours and the skin, I'm rubbing it right now, the skin underneath, underneath my nose, on my lip, is still smooth as a baby's belt. I'm feeling my whole face right now. I don't feel any stubble. And it makes sense when you think about, so you've got this hair and you go one direction with it, you've cut it at one angle. And then if you go another way, you cut it at another angle. So now you've created this like pointed head on it. So if you were to go sideways now, now you've cut it from three different angles. You've cut more of the tip of that hair off than you would have just going one direction. And he says he doesn't do this three-step pattern every day. But sometimes you just want to. And I never thought that was an option. So I'm a big fan of that. I'll let you know. If I get the safety razor, how that goes, check out the video. Even if you're, if you're not a man or you're not a shaving person, it's just interesting to watch. I think it's kind of like those things, you know, on Instagram where people are cutting foam with hot knives and I think it's called oddly satisfying. I think that's the hashtag. That's kind of what this is like for me. So check it out. Let me know. All right. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clarify something real quick here. As the show has been developing, I've been realizing things and I keep coming up with names for sections like intro and then media center. 
This week, something hit me so hard that it made me laugh that I hadn't thought of it before. With my supporters over on Patreon, I think I talked about this in an audio extra before, but I had this strong craving to take all of the, the ideas from projects that I had tried in the past that didn't really, they died. You know, they didn't really live. Like further questions, all of these other little things like that. Maybe one day I want to bring those back. That's why I ended up bringing back Random Badassery with Lamb. I didn't want to leave that thing just as something that died. I wanted to breathe some life into it. And I had been considering, we're talking like a 5% consideration. Nothing big, but I'd just been thinking about it. That's what I do with my patrons. I, I share things where I'm like, I'm kind of thinking about this. I doubt I'll do it, but let me just share it with you. Showing that behind the scenes kind of vulnerability. That's kind of the stuff I share with them over there. And I told them, I said, I kind of want to bring back these shows just to be able to say they didn't die. I finally found a place for them all. And I realized this week that almost all of them, with the exception of a few, fit into the format of this show. They're the names for the, the sections that I had been unable to name before. You know, the section that we just finished, the section where typically I talk about personal stuff and health stuff and things like that. It's really, it's kind of like a journal. So that journal thing that I've always done on my website, that's, we just went through the journal section. We're about to go into a section, I'm calling it technicalities, but it's a reference to a tech show, very brief tech show that I did with Lamb years ago called Technical Ramblings. Then there's a section where I tell you stuff that I've gone through during the week, you know, the media stuff that I went through during the week that I think is cool, want you to know about. That's what I've been calling on my website as recommends. I don't know why I didn't call it here, recommends. So that's what it's called now. Then there's the, I think last week I referred to it as the tidbit stuff. It's stuff that's maybe a couple paragraphs I found in a book that bring up an interesting question or something from a magazine that brings up an interesting question. It's something that's not like a full, complete thing. It's just, this is interesting. Let's think about that. And it's not a big piece. It's a smaller piece. And that's really marginalia, which is something I've been sort of doing on the website. It was the name of a newsletter I did a long time ago. So that section is marginalia. And then the last section, which for the longest time I've been calling the featured section, it really fits under further questions, doesn't it? Because typically I go into that section and there's a question or questions that I have that I'm trying to answer from some sort of media. What's going on with the logic in Missing 411? Why isn't there any logic in Missing 411? Or last week, is there a connection between the gut and emotions? Or what the hell is Zettelkasten? Three episodes back. Dinosaur no taking that was four episodes back. But we did touch on it again three episodes back. So now when we go into those sections, I'm going to call out the names of them. And you'll have, if you listen to this episode, at least an idea of what the hell I'm talking about. So let's go into technicalities for the first time. Welcome to technicalities. First thing I want to talk about today, the day that I'm recording this, not the day you're going to hear it. It's Tuesday, September 14th. We had an Apple event today. And I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I like watching Apple events. I like watching the way that they present things, seeing where things are going. I always surprisingly get excited about the health stuff because it makes me feel like the world is getting better, that things are improving. You know, like, wow, you can do an EKG on your wrist. That's awesome. And I think about all the people that will actually help or the fall detection, all these little things that maybe a lot of people don't care about. I think about all the ways that it's improving people's lives for the good. Years ago, they, they, I can't remember what it was called. I don't think it's health kit, but it was the thing where people could do, take part in medical studies 
using their Apple Watch because it's continually taking monitoring of heart rate and so forth. They were going to give these studies more data in like one year than they would get in like a decade. And I got really excited about that because that kind of data is how things change. So I like watching the Apple events. They get me excited. I watched today's, I'll say this, nothing extremely exciting, nothing inspiring in the way that I just said there, but nothing bad. Sometimes with a company, minor iterations, you know, something that's only like a 20% improvement, I think is a good sign of stability that they're not trying to push themselves too hard. And that's when things get messed up. They push too hard. We're going to talk about something like that a little bit later. We kind of talked about it a little bit earlier with Caliper too, didn't we? And I realized the connection between these three things. But the one thing I did want to say about the whole Apple event is something I thought about last year and I didn't do it. And I think I'm going to do it this year. I think I'm going to go for the iPhone mini. I think I am ready to go back to that small little device in my pocket. You know, the original iPhone size. It's thinner, obviously, but that little thing that fits in the palm of my hand, I think I'm ready for that. So like the size of the device has become less important. And I'm taking the sign that it's become less important to me physically as a sign that it's becoming less important to me metaphorically. So I think I'm going to embrace that and I'm going to go with the small phone. Anybody out there have the mini? I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think of it. Next thing. Last week, I mentioned an app called Tally. I said that I was using a Mac app called Tally when I'm going through my note organization so that I know when I'm going through 10. And I mentioned that this app I thought was made by the same people that make drafts. And that company, by the way, is called Agile Tortoise. The Mac app that I'm using is not made by Agile Tortoise. Agile Tortoise makes another app called Tally. The tally that Agile Tortoise makes is only for the iPhone. It's not available on the Mac. And it turns out also, as I found out, that there are a shit ton of apps called tally. There's like six. There's like a finance app called tally. There's a bunch of apps that do the exact same thing called tally. But I found the one that Agile Tortoise makes. It's a, it's a white icon with a green plus symbol. It's real basic looking icon stands out and I download it just to see, wait, what's the difference between this and the one that I have on my Mac? It turns out I like this one more. So I recommended one Tally app last week. I'm going to recommend the other. The reason I am using this one that I prefer this one is it turns out to do what I'm doing. It is kind of a pain in the ass to have my Obsidian open and work with a note and then swipe to another desktop to click a button to just count a number and then go back to the other desktop. It's a lot easier to just leave Obsidian on my screen and have this other app on my phone. And then every time I finish a note, just push over with my left hand, right hand on the mouse, left hand on the phone, boom, next, boom, next. No swapping of screens. So that works out a lot better. And there are some top-notch gestures in this app. I don't even use it to its full capacity. I think if you pay $2, I think it's just like a $2 lifetime fee, it unlocks multiple features. Like you can have multiple tallies running and stuff like that. I don't need multiple tallies, but the gestures that I use, fantastic. For example, I just tap on the screen, anywhere on the screen and it counts. And then if I want to reverse, I swipe down. So, you know, if I go one, two, three, four, five, oops, that five, I only wanted to be at four. I just one finger swipe down on the screen. It goes back one number. And then how I've been using it too, when I get to 10, I swipe up on the screen and there's a button that says reset to zero, click that, start over again. So 
super simple, but completely useful. Tally by Agile Tortoise, not Tally from last week. Another thing I'm fitting into this technicality section is not just tech stuff. It's I think this is about productivity. It's about how I get things done. It's about the thinking process of things. I've been talking about time blocking, I think maybe just in the last episode, maybe two episodes ago and also came up. Not sure, but definitely in the last episode, Guts for Brains, I talked about time blocking. And what I discovered, I told you I was already doing it. It was working wonderfully. What I discovered on Saturday was I had friction and then it happened again on Sunday. And it turns out I had friction because it was the weekend that this schedule of things that I wanted to do and time blocking daily that I wanted to do was working Monday through Friday. But there was a part of me that was completely resisting doing it on Saturdays and Sundays. So I started to wonder, maybe the idea of, of taking weekends off is not about relaxing, which is what I always thought it was, but it's more about pattern interruption, that we don't want to do the same things, a lot of us. We don't want to do the same exact thing seven days a week. We can completely convince ourselves to do it five days a week, knowing that two other days we're going to break the pattern. And I think that's what's going on here with me. I'm not saying I don't want to do things on the weekend. I just don't want to do them to that structure on the weekends. I want the option not to do them. I want the option to do them, but do them at different times. I want the option of, eh, you know what? I'm not going to read for one hour. I'm going to read for 15 minutes this time. Or I want the option of, I'm going to read for three hours and I'm not going to do anything else today. That's what I want for the weekends. Is that a reasonable thing to do? Am I making excuses or is that a reasonable thing? And I picked up Daily Rituals, which is a book that I've mentioned before by Mason Curry. It's a collection of the daily rituals of creative people. I've been rereading it. This is rereading I think this is only the second time I've read it completely. I only had about 15 pages, maybe even 10 pages left in the book. I picked it up and I started to finish it. And literally the first entry that I picked up was on choreographer Twyla Tharp who I'm familiar with because I read her book, The Creative Habit, a couple years ago. Excellent book on creativity and creative habit, obviously. One of those straightforward titles. Mason Curry includes here in, the, in Daily Rituals two quotes that are actually from that book. And the first one was just one of those things where it's like, I can't believe this is happening right at this moment, right after I'd been doing about, about habit and daily ritual and the specific idea of holding a schedule. She says, I begin each day of my life with ritual. I wake up at 5.30 a.m., put on my work clothes, my leg warmers, my sweatshirts, and my hats. I walk outside my Manhattan home, hail a taxi, and tell the driver to take me to the pumping iron gym on 91st Street and 1st Avenue, where I work out for two hours. The ritual is not the stretching and the weight training I put my body through each morning at the gym. The ritual is the cab. The moment I tell the driver where to go, I have completed the ritual. Now there's something really powerful about that idea of the cab being the ritual. Runners say that the ritual isn't the running, it's putting on the tennis shoes. I've gone through that thought process myself before, but what I'm focusing on here more is just the regularity. I'm contemplating, should I take weekends off? And the first thing that I read is about how she does this exact thing every day. So now I'm starting to doubt myself. I keep reading. She says this is important because the ritual 
it removes the debate of will I or won't I. And this makes complete sense to me. You know, we don't debate on whether we should brush our teeth. We just say, you know what? I brush my teeth. For example, I brush my teeth before I take a shower every day. And when I finish brushing my teeth, it's time to turn on the water and take a shower. I don't think about it. It's just the way it goes. Same thing every day. No problems. Don't have to think about it. So there's complete logic to the idea idea of there's no debate there. It's just, it is what it is. And that's the way it happens. Don't worry about it. Don't think about it. Another quote from her. I repeat the wake up, the workout, the quick shower, the breakfast of three hard boiled egg whites and a cup of coffee, the hour of making my morning calls and dealing with correspondence. The two hours of stretching and working out ideas by myself in the studio, the rehearsals with my dance company, the return home in the late afternoon to handle more business details, the early dinner and a few quiet hours of reading. That's my day. Every day. A dancer's life is all about repetition. Son of a bitch. (laughs) Here I am thinking about taking the weekend off. And she's saying every day, like a hammer. It's okay, buddy. Sometimes when I curse on the podcast, like I just did, the dog freaks out. He thinks he's in trouble. That's what he's doing right now. He's looking at me like he thinks that I just called him a son of a bitch. I guess that's motivation to watch my language. But I, I've read this stuff now. Now I'm having a debate in my head. Like I thought I was pretty much convinced that I should take the weekends off. And what I'm worried about here at this time in this story is I'm worried about pattern interruption and the importance of pattern interruption. Is it actually important or am I telling myself a story? Am I allowing myself to be lazy when I should be making myself more diligent and more disciplined? Is all of the usefulness of repetition all this stuff that I've been talking about that's been working so well, does all of that break if I take some days off? Is the magic of it only going to work if I do it every single day? Honestly, I just couldn't, I couldn't get the feeling out of my head, but I, the more I thought about it, I kept telling myself, no. Remember how in last week I said that the metaphor of the workday is what worked for me, that as I tweeted either yesterday or today. If you find you can't work for four hours a day, try eight. That's something about that metaphor of the workday, the full eight-hour workday is what clicked for me. It's what brought me in. It's the metaphor that drew me in. It's the story that I needed. And I started thinking about that and I, I realized, what if it's not just the workday that I need, but it's the concept of the work week? What if I need the, hey, I work Monday through Friday and then I get to party on the weekends. I'm not really going to party, but what if that is also part of the metaphor that I need, that that's the way things function for me? So I kept reading and I kept wrestling with that. And five, six pages later, actually the, the last entry in the book is about writer Bernard Malamud. And this is what Malamud said, quote, There's no one way. There's too much drivel about this subject. You're who you are, not Fitzgerald or Thomas Wolfe. You write by sitting down and writing. There's no particular time or place. You suit yourself, your nature. How one works, assuming he's disciplined, doesn't matter. 
If he or she is not disciplined, no sympathetic magic will help. The trick is to make time, not steal it, and produce the fiction. If the stories come, you get them written. You're on the right track. Eventually, everyone learns his or her own best way. The real mystery to crack is you. And that's it. Once again, I was looking at somebody else and going, should I be doing it their way? When inside, I knew this is how I needed to do it. I need the metaphor of the work. I need the metaphor of the work week. I guess maybe the secret is just keep reading. <laughs> if I had just stuck with those pages, I would have been debating for days. So I just kept reading. And here's the other answer. The last page of the book. Thank you very much. I have to find my own way. It doesn't matter what works for others. It matters what works for me. What do I need to make this happen? And that's what I need to do. So that's where I'm going with that. That's where I'm going forward with that. I want to introduce something new. I don't know if I'll do this every week, but I thought it would be fun to end out technicalities. I want to share with you my last five web searches. I'm not going to talk a lot about them. I just want to share them. And then I'll give you a tiny bit of insight of why they're there. So number one, conspiracy theory with Jesse Ventura. I was reading something or listening to a podcast or something. They mentioned this. I remember that he had a conspiracy theory TV show. So I wanted to see, hey, can I stream that? I want to check it out. Does it suck? Is it good? Found it. It's not streaming. And honestly, I probably wouldn't have liked it anyways. Because uh, Jesse Ventura really disappointed me. I remember reading his book, Democrips and Rebloodicans, kind of about how the political parties were ruining everything. And I was, at the time that I read it, it's been a long time. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to say it's, it's the best thing now. I don't remember. But at the time of reading, I was like, yeah, this makes so much sense. But then when it came, this whole MAGA thing came on, he just jumped on that train. And I was like, so did anything you said in that book actually mean anything? You just jumped on a political party. So probably a good thing that it shows not streaming. Search number two. Pottershaw Emperor. So basically, I was on Twitter defending David Lynch's Dune because everybody always shits on that movie, even David Lynch himself, because he Alan Smithied it, which means he put on a fake name instead of his own. I like that movie. In fact, I love that movie. I grew up with that movie. That movie is the reason that I like science fiction, and I will defend it to the death. I don't give a shit if anybody else likes it because it has Patrick Stewart in it. I was just searching it so that I could make sure that I was spelling Pottershaw correctly. Search number three, Quillette. Quillette is a publication from Australia. I say publication because it's a magazine, it's a podcast, it's a website. I don't know a lot about them. I didn't know a lot about them. Some people describe them as libertarian-leaning. They don't describe themselves that. I just know that a couple years ago, I ran across like one or two things that were on their website. And I remember thinking, Oh, this is interesting. This is written by some pretty thoughtful academics. And I was kind of putting together some RSS, some, you know, blog feeds so that I can have some different kind of content coming in on a regular basis. And I was like, oh, maybe I would like to add them. They popped in my head. And I clicked on the website and like the first three articles I saw were like culture wars, cancel culture, rah, rah, rah. So yeah, no, 
I'm not, I don't really want to open myself up, open my door to that stuff. It's just, it's this repetitive system of people complaining about stuff. It doesn't mean that sometimes they're not right and sometimes they're not completely wrong. I just don't want to hear it. I'm tired of it. It's, it's a broken record. If you want to do something, do something, do stop fucking bitching. Jesus Christ. The world is full of bitchers right now. Next thing I search for, search number four, New Philosopher. New Philosopher is a magazine. I actually get New Philosopher in a digital format free through my script subscription. It's just a philosophy magazine. I like their content so much that I was like, you know what? I would like to have the actual physical paper. I would like to have that. I would like to actually subscribe to the magazine. I would actually like to give them my money. And I also learned something cool in the process of looking them up. They're only published four times a year. So it's only four issues and it's like $15 an issue. And you think, what? $15 for a magazine? Yeah, well, check this out. Zero advertisements. It is a paper magazine published four times a year with zero advertisers. It's 100% subscriber funded. How awesome is that? I don't even know what it's like to open a magazine and not see ads. I'll let you know. I should be getting, in the next month or so, I should be getting my first issue, which is technically last month's issue on identity. That's why I was searching for a new philosopher. I subscribed. And last, my fifth one, how to dispose of razor blades. Cause yeah, I was looking up how to use safety razors and I started thinking about how gnarly it is to leave a naked razor blade on a counter. Well, what about in a garbage bag? And I started to think there's got to, you can't just like toss those things in the garbage. That seems like really careless. So I was looking, looking it up. And the first thing it said is look up your county and your state because everybody has different provisions. Basically, I can just throw them in the garbage can here, but they advise you to wrap them in tape at least. What you can actually do is you can buy a little box, a little plastic box that's about the size of maybe smaller than the two palms of my hands, but bigger than one palm. And it'll hold a hundred razor blades. You can just stuff like a hundred razor blades in it and then just recycle the whole box. And that's that little plastic box. It's only like seven bucks. So after you go through a hundred razor blades, you spend another seven bucks. I think that's a pretty good way to go about it. That seems safer and less insane to me. <laughs> All right, technicalities. That was your, your first time on stage. Let's move on to recommends. I don't have a book this week. I don't have a book this week, but at least a fiction book this week, because the novel that I'm reading is huge. In audio, it's, I think it's 26 hours. I still have like 10 hours left of this book. So it's not done yet. It's a good book though. I'm definitely going to recommend it. Just a little hint for next week. I think I only have three things it recommends this week. I think first one TV show, Wu-Tang and American Saga. So here's a little interesting thing. Most people think that I'm not into hip hop because I don't really talk about hip hop a lot. They're right and they're wrong. I don't listen to hip hop very often. It's not really my main music, which shouldn't be too much of a surprise. I am a 40 year old white male. I've been exposed to hip hop. I didn't grow up with hip hop. When I do listen to hip hop, I listen to hip hop from when I was younger because I like that. I don't really like modern hip hop. Sorry. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not criticizing it. It doesn't appeal to me at all. So much of it is about polish and production and glam and glitz and getting all the levels right and all of perfecting the, you know, it's like, it's like pop music where everything is dialed in, which is a great thing for the industry. It just doesn't connect with me. And I see that as someone who has a friend whose literal day job is producing hip hop. It just doesn't connect with me. Like I said, not a criticism at all. 
I don't connect with it. I connect with older hip hop. I've said this about music before. When I've talked about music in the past, most of the time when I talk about music, there's one unifying factor in the things that I like. They're off kilter, they're raw, and they're a little bit broken. And that's why I like older hip hop. I like, listen, I mean, when I say older hip hop, I mean, going back to like the beginning, like the treacherous three, all the way through run DMC, pretty much into the nineties. I think I pretty much stopped for the most part of the nineties. There's stuff after that that I liked, you know, like I thought Jay-Z had some pretty good stuff, but for the most part, seventies to nineties hip hop, that's me because I feel like when I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm hearing something new being created something new coming to life. And I shouldn't say, I think it literally is that. It's a new form of music being created right before my eyes. So I connect with that stuff more than anything. So when I listen to that, that's kind of, that's what I'm listening to when I listen to hip hop. Doesn't mean I don't branch out every once in a while, but for the most part, if I do, that's where I am. Maybe as far as, as the early 2000s, but none of this means that I don't have a favorite when it comes to hip hop, because I do. The undisputed champs, as far as my favorite, the Wu-Tang Clan. RZA is hands down my favorite rapper because he epitomizes everything I just said. He's a little bit broken when he raps. He embraces speech impediments and emphasizes it. You know, he says swords instead of swords. Sometimes he says words like with a lisp, even though he doesn't have a lisp. His rhythm is just a little off kilter sometimes. And sometimes he, he, he jams in too many syllables just to kind of create some sort of friction or tension. I love that. I love that challenge. And it's far more interesting to me. And so as an extension, I love his production because his production has a lot of those same elements, especially like the first two albums of Wu-Tang. You know, everybody talks about Enter the 36 Chambers, the first album. But I love Wu-Tang Forever, too. That double album, I love that album. And I love all the early solo albums. Matt's first album, Raekwon's first album, Ghostface's first album. I love that shit. I have, I have the Bobby Digital album, which wasn't very big, which is a RZA solo project. I have it because I like it. And then when I say I have it, I own it on CD. You know, like I physically bought that. There was a movie with Warren Beatty called Bullworth, and RZA had one song on the soundtrack, so I bought it just for the song. So last year, when I saw that they were making, making a Wu-Tang television show, the scripted telling of how the Wu-Tang came to be, and it was going to be co-written by my favorite guy, Riza, I was in. If the Abbott's in, I'm in. And I loved the first season. I mean, I don't know if it all came out at once, but when I found it, it was all out. And I watched it all in a day and a half. I plowed through the whole first season as fast as I could. And, you know, like knowing as much as I do about Wu-Tang Clan, I was watching the whole thing. I'm like, wait, okay, who's that actor? Is that, is that guy, is that going to be you God? Is that the guy that's going to take on the name you God? Is that, where's Inspector Deck? Where's, where, we're still asking this question, where's Master Killer? But he was the last guy to join the Wu-Tang Clan. So he's obviously not even in the show yet. So get a little nerdy on this. So when I saw season two was up, I jumped. Boom. Let me see the first episode. And they're doing it where they're releasing episodes every week. So I can't devour it. But every time an episode comes out, I'm in. I'm enjoying the second season. It's not as good as the first season. There's two reasons, I think, for that. Maybe three. One reason, there's a lot more action in the first season. Because 
things are still developing and the guys are still living more street life. So there's a lot more guns and stuff like that. So there's a lot more tension and things could go bad at any moment in the first season. There's some of that in the second season, but dial back, you know, like Rake is not slinging anymore. Things change a little bit. So that changes the season a little bit. I also think that maybe COVID put a show together during COVID because that's why I was shocked that the show was up because everybody is off by like a season because of COVID. But boom, here's the season. And the third thing is there's some weird voiceover stuff that they do in multiple episodes that just doesn't play very well. I'm wondering if maybe the COVID rush made them do voiceover stuff because they couldn't really flesh something out completely. It was like, oh, just have him say it in his head. It doesn't work as well. But I'm not saying it's a bad season. I'm just saying it's not as good as the first season, which is fine. You know, they're not all going to be, if the first season's a 10, they're not all going to be 10s. It's okay to have a seven. Either way, though, I'm on board. I'm devouring every episode when it comes out. I don't give a shit. I want to see how the story goes. I love it. And it's honestly, it's one of five, maybe six shows that are still, quote unquote, if we can still use the phrase on the air, that I'm anxious for every single episode and for every season. So, Wu-Tang forever. Another TV show that I feel the same way about, that I devour every season, every episode, Ted Lasso. I've talked about it before, but I want to bring up Ted Lasso again because I want to talk about season two, episode eight, which is this week's episode, Man City. Possibly, possibly one of the best Ted Lasso episodes yet. And the reason I say that is because it passes my MASH test. MASH being the TV show. It was also a book. It was also a movie. I'm talking about the TV show. When I was younger, MASH would always come on after the 11 o'clock news. So the news would end, and then you'd hear, and then Suicide is Painless, the theme song, that would come on. But I was too young. The only reason I knew that is, for the most part, because I heard it from another room. Because I wasn't sleeping when I was supposed to be. But sometimes I would see, you know, you, know, you do kids, sometimes you're awake later, and I'd see the helicopter. But I never got to watch the show. And think, I think I was until I was in my 20s. And I finally sat down and watched all of MASH. And what MASH taught me is that there's a difference between a good comedy and great comedy, as far as television goes. I'm trying not to use the word sitcom here, because I don't know that MASH fits the term sitcom. I don't know that Ted Lasso fits the term sitcom. I think sitcom is not just half-hour comedy. I think sitcom requires a laugh track or a live audience, in my opinion, at least. Like Silicon Valley, would you call that a sitcom? No, it's a half-hour comedy. I think there's a difference. And the writing is different, too. That's why I'm using the word comedy here. Difference between a great TV comedy and a good TV comedy. A good TV comedy makes you laugh. A great TV comedy makes you laugh and then can turn on a dime and break your heart and make you weep. They don't do it often, but when they do it, it's like a kick to the groin. For example... The episode of Cheers where Coach's daughter visits and she doesn't think she's beautiful. The episode of Fresh Prince where his father shows up at the cafe where he's working and he ends up crying on Uncle Phil's shoulder, sobbing, why didn't he want me? Here's a big one. The dog episode of Futurama. If you watch that and you didn't cry, you don't have a soul. A personal favorite of mine, How I Met Your Mother. There's a scene where Lily... And Ted are on the roof. And she has 
this confession that she makes about motherhood. It's just this heartbreaking moment. Another example, going back to MASH, the news of Colonel Blake. If you, if you see MASH, you know what that means. And pretty much every final episode of every show you've ever loved does the same thing. The final episode of Friends destroys you. The final episode of MASH destroys you. Final episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air destroys you. Final episode of Cheers. I get choked up just thinking of some of these moments, to be honest. When I was writing out this list, like just to remember some of the highlights they hit, I could feel them. I could feel them rising up in me. So that's the MASH test. And season two, episode eight of Ted Lasso, Man City passes this test. Not only did it pass this test, I think to certain degrees, it happens four times in this episode. On a scale of, of one to five severities, you have like two, one or twos, you have a three and you have a four. So I think they're doing a great job, Ted Lasso. If you have not been watching that, you are totally missing out. If you own an iPhone and you haven't used the free Apple TV, year of Apple TV plus that you get with buying an iPhone, you should just so you can watch Ted Lasso. One more recommendation. This is a brief one, and it's not any cheerier than the last one, but there's a great podcast called Long Shadow right now, which is about 9-11, and it's extremely well done, and it will choke you up as well at certain points. That's all I have to say about it. Let's move on to marginalia. I really only have one thing to touch on in marginalia. I was listening to Blind Boy podcast, and this is an episode from August 31st of this year. It is an interview with director Jim Sheridan. Jim Sheridan did My Left Foot, In the Name of the Father, The Boxer, all three of which were with the young Daniel Day-Lewis. He also did the movie Brothers with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal and Natalie Portman. And he also did a movie that I love called In America, which is just an underrated film. I can't believe no one ever talked about that film. It's such a good film. In this interview, Sheridan makes a pretty interesting statement and it's actually, it's kind of, it's kind of brief. It comes back up briefly again later in the interview, but it's never really dug into. I wanted to touch on it. He talks about the transition from analog to digital in regards to filmmaking, in particular, 24 frames per minute. Without going too deep, if you don't know this stuff, a moving picture is not really a moving picture. It's frames when it comes to analog, when it comes to film. You know, you've seen film strips. So 24 frames, that's how many times it's taking a picture per minute. He says that when that was done, and I say he says because this means I don't know. He says when that was done, 24 frames per minute meant that there were blank frames. I'm assuming either to get from 24, I don't know how many, maybe it's to get to 30. So you, you're, there's six blank frames there, maybe. Instead of 24 frames, you get to get to 30, you know, 30 being half of 60, you know, the number being divisible by the number of seconds in a minute, or maybe it's to get to 25 or maybe it's to get to 26. I don't know. But he's saying that there were blank frames when you did analog film. Somebody knows better. Please tell me. In fact, he, he mentions that people used to use those blank frames to try to embed things. And that's how the whole idea of like subliminal advertising came up, I believe was somewhat debunked that it didn't work. It's kind of hard to piece together a lot of this because once again, I don't know all the logistics of film the way that he does, obviously being a filmmaker who's worked with film. And he also, as I said, only touched on it briefly. So I'm kind of piecing things together here. He suggests 
that the blank frames were actually effective in entrancing the audience. That something about those blank frames, that space of those blank frames, allowed people's minds to get lost in a film more easily than they would have been without them or than it is without them using digital. Because digital is not taking photos. It is a continuous feed. I believe the frame rate is more of a replication of data than it is of how many photos it's taking. The sample, we're referring to, referring to it by the same terms, but it's actually technically sampling. He says that because of that, we were more able to suspend our disbelief when watching a film. But now with digital, those blank frames are removed, so the spell is broken. We don't get sucked into films the way that we used to. We never forget that what we're watching is actually fake. It's always apparent to us that what we're watching isn't real. He thinks that that has messed with our relationship with truth. That because of that, we have more difficulty discerning truth from lies. Hence the rise of conspiracy theories and cries of fake news. So that's the theory. Stew on that one. Think about it. Rage against it. Shit on it. Worship it. I don't know. It's definitely something I've been wrestling with. And for the record, I am a person who's actually extra sensitive to frame rates. I'm not in the sense of believing what I'm seeing, but when I watch something that's in 60 frames per minute, it actually looks fake to me. It looks like a shitty home video. Like the lighting is all bad. It looks like a soap opera to me. It's, it's completely unwatchable. Other people don't see it. I've sat in front of a television with somebody, I don't know if it was in 50 frames, frames per minute, but sometimes people can tweak their TVs, their identity TVs to make it look like that. And I've been sitting there watching it going, wow, that looks, that looks weird. Does that look weird to you? And they don't see it. So it's, it's obviously something about my physiology that allows me to, I shouldn't say allows me, forces me to see what other people can't. They're completely able to watch it. But to me, I just, I can't. I have this thing that other people don't have. Some people can roll their tongues. Other people can't. I can see that. I can see frame rate differences and it bothers me. 120, completely unwatchable to me. It actually makes me physically nauseous. This isn't hyperbole or a metaphor. Physically nauseous, I get dizzy. When I watch that stuff, I can't. I can't. And that has to do with blur. It's taking more frames, so there's less blur. But our mind is used to seeing blur. And I think what it is, is some people are able to look and their mind is able to generate the blur that's not there, and I can't. So I get nauseous. That's kind of the way the marginalia stuff goes. It's just kind of open little pieces out there in the air. Think about it. But the further questions, which is a section we're going to move into now, is a little bit more in depth. This is usually where I pull in quotes and stuff. Once again, not necessarily, I don't want to be known as an arbiter of truth, that I'm deciding what's true and what's not, which I feel like a little bit, I'm a, a little bit disappointed in the way that I worded a couple things last week, because I don't think I made it clear enough last week that the idea of the gut and emotions being tied is still a theory, that that's not accepted in medical science. There are a lot of scientists that believe it, but it's not, it's not there. It's not quote official yet. So I don't know if I made that clear enough last week, but this is where I bring in more evidence, more things to play with. And this is actually a spinoff in a way of last week. I mentioned last week in the recommendations to check out Bad Blood, the final chapter of the podcast about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And I said, if you want the background story, the Bad Blood, the final chapter is about her trial. She's in trial. She's actually today was in trial in the courtroom probably 
15 minutes from here. She's in downtown San Jose. Trial today. It's literally happening right now where I am. The other podcast I recommended was The Dropout. And The Dropout was from a couple years ago. I think it was two years ago. Where they, they told the whole story, the whole saga of how Theranos got there. Well, you know, how, how we get to this place where this person is now going to go to trial. Well, it turns out when I went over to go look at the dropout that they've been putting out some new episodes too. So they're also putting out episodes about the current trial. So what I ended up doing was going through and listening to all the old episodes of dropout. It's only like, like six episodes from the season before. And then all the new ones. I spent literally a whole day just going down the rabbit hole on this. And when I got to the end of the podcast, I realized I had more questions. To use the title of this section, I had further questions. And the podcast wasn't going to give me all the knowledge that I needed. So I actually went on Amazon and I bought the Kindle book of Bad Blood. So Bad Blood is the book, the definitive book of the Theranos case or the Theranos story written by John Carreyou, who was a Wall Street Journal writer. He's actually the one who exposed the whole thing. He's also the host of the Bad Blood, the Final Chapter podcast. That's why it's called the Final Chapter. It's literally billed as an addendum to the book that he wrote. And he's actually interviewed multiple times in The Dropout because he's such a key character in this case. So I went, I bought that book, and I started reading that book to try to find some answers. I've only read 10% of this book. But I found some of the answers that I was looking for, and I wanted to share them with you so that we can kind of stew about them a little bit. Maybe you're wondering the same things that I've been wondering if you've been following this case. Here are my four questions. Number one, how the hell did she get so much money? You know, if this was a fraud, how did so many people fall for it? How did she get so much damn money? This, this company was valued in the billions. How the hell did that happen? Number two. How exactly was this supposed machine going to work? How was this technology that everybody was saying was going to revolutionize the world? What was the story here of how it was going to work? Why did everybody believe it? Why did everybody want to believe it? Number three, how was she fooling investors who should have known better? Selling the technology, most people want to see the technology. If it didn't work, how the hell was she getting away with that? And number four, how did she think she was going to continue to get away with this? You know, if you say you're making something and it doesn't work, how do you think that you're going to be able to get away with that? So those are my four questions. Let's start with the first one. How the hell did she get so much money? This all basically comes down to two concepts. It's not what you know. It's who you know. And also the concept of getting your foot in the door. So what I mean by this, number one, the first person that she got interested in her idea, which at the time was called Therapatch, which was supposed to be this patch that you could put on your arm that would diagnose your medical condition and also medicate you. The first person that she got interested in that idea was Channing Robertson, who was the associate dean of Stanford School of Engineering, which was where she was a student at the time. And when she got him on board, he started connecting her to CEOs who she could talk to and learn from because he had faith in her idea. Number two, once she had Robertson on board, whose name was a big deal, then she could approach investors like Tim Draper and Victor Palmieri. Tim Draper is a legendary venture capitalist. He's also the father of Elizabeth's childhood friend, 
So she had a personal connection. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Victor Palmieri was a longtime friend of her father. It's not what you know, it's who you know. So she's got this guy on board. Now she can get these two investors on board because of that guy. Now, number three, she's got them on board. She can use their names to get more money and to hire people. And when she hires people, she hires people that up her credibility. Here's a list of some of the people she had working for her. She had Tim Kemp, who was the lead of bioinformatics. He worked at IBM as an executive for 30 years. You had Henry Mosley. Henry Mosley was the CFO. He started out as a chip maker at Intel, and then he ran, ran finance departments for four different companies, two of which went public. Then you had Donald Lucas, who was chairman of the board. He's a venture capitalist, and he was the mentor of Larry Ellison and the guy who helped Larry Ellison take Oracle public. She had Larry Ellison as an investor. She had Channing Robertson, as I said, who was a board member. She had Diane Parks, who was CCO. She was a 25-year veteran of biotech and pharmaceutical companies. She had John Howard, who was senior VP of product. This guy ran Panasonic's chip-making arm. And then she had Shanuk Roy, who was her co-founder, went to Stanford with her. He had a PhD in chemical engineering. So now she could go to people and say, hey, do you want to invest? My other investors are Tim Draper, Victor Palmieri, Larry Ellison, Channing Robertson. The employees I have working for me are Tim Kemp, Henry Mosley, and David Lucas, and Diane Parks, and John Howard, and my co-founder has a PhD in chemical engineering. We're going to change the world. It all snowballed. And every time somebody with a big name would jump on, she could add that. Rupert Murdoch, guy who owns Fox News, he invested so she could throw his name around. And then the DeVos family and the Wall family, who owns Walmart, they both invested so she could throw their names around, which gets you bigger and bigger checks every time. And then you put on top of that step number five, snowballs being number four, step number five, press. Every time she get press, her credibility would raise. She was on stage at one point being interviewed by Bill Clinton. Another thing, she was announced on stage by Jared Leto. So that's how she got so much money. My second question, how exactly was this machine supposed to work? This is the 1.0 machine. Like I said, I've only read 10% of this book. I don't know if this changed later, but the 1.0 machine was said to blend the fields of microfluidics and biochemistry. So basically you would prick your finger, a little prick of blood, and you would place that on this credit card size cartridge. And then you would take that credit card size cartridge and slot it into the reader which was the bigger machine. And the reader was said to pump the blood from that cartridge through some tiny channels inside of the cartridge. And while it was being pumped, red and white blood cells were filtered out from the plasma. And then the plasma is said to pump into these antibody-coated wells. And when they got into the antibody-coated wells, a chemical reaction would occur, and that's what would give them the signal and hence a reading. That's how it's supposed to work. Very simple in the sense that there's nothing more I can say about it, but I just, no one had ever explained that. And all the things, the two podcasts I listened to, the documentary I watched on it, it's just not something that came up as far as I remember. So that's something I needed to know in order to really understand this whole thing. Because you can remember if this is what she's selling, you gotta understand how it's supposed to work. Another thing that's important to know too, what they claimed was this was going to be able to become instant if you've gone to Quest Diagnostics or 
one of these bigger labs, you get a test. It takes time. It takes hours, sometimes days, depending on the thing, sometimes weeks. This was going to be instant. And with just a tiny drop of blood, no needles. That was their big selling point. No needles in your arm anymore. Just a tiny prick of blood. And they'd be able to do 250 tests. Sometimes I think they said 300 on just that little blood. That was the sale. That's why everybody wanted this thing, right? And it was a portable machine, more portable than all these other ones. It wasn't tiny, but it was something that you could carry from place to place more easily. Question three, how was she fooling investors who should have known better? So for example, the book starts with Elizabeth taking a flight in 2006 to Switzerland, where she's meeting with investors. And these investors weren't just one of the mill investors. These guys were representatives from Novartis. And Novartis is or was a giant in the European pharmaceutical industry. So these were people, when it comes to blood and testing and pharmaceuticals, these are people who should be able to see bullshit instantly. How did she fool them? Because the story is that she went there and she impressed them. So if, as Elizabeth later admitted that the machine, when it worked, was only able to do tens of tests, AKA 15 at best, then how did she pull this off in Switzerland? How did she impress them? And on top of that, how is she impressing other people in the same way, doing demos? So something you need to know about the machine first was that the machine was only said to collect the data, not analyze it. So the machine was only collecting data. It's only a diagnostic machine. It was taking the data that is collecting and sending it wirelessly to a server. And the server is analyzing it and sending back results. That's, that's how it was supposed to work. Okay. So now that you understand that, you're going to understand these two quotes a little bit better. Quote one, one of the two readers Elizabeth took to Switzerland had malfunctioned when they got there. The employees she brought with her had stayed up all night to get it to work. To mask the problem during the demo, the next morning, Tim Kemp's team in California beamed over a fake result. So that's how she got it to work over there. Because remember, this machine is only collecting. It's supposed to be analyzed by the server, which means that you could fake it by sending over pre-made results. Second quote. Well, there was a reason it always seemed to work, Chinook said. The image on the computer screen showing the blood flowing through the cartridge and settling into the little wells was real. But you never knew whether you were going to get a result or not. So... They'd record a result from one of the times it worked. It was the recorded result that was displayed at the end of each demo. So there's another part of this too is, from what I gathered in most of these demos, they were testing their own blood and not testing the blood of the people they're doing the demo for. So they could just pull up results on themselves because they had them saved. In other cases, they were hand sampling things. So if they were doing a demo on someone, they're going to actually do the blood of the person they're doing the representative for. And they were on the grounds at Theranos. They would just take the blood in the back room and analyze it by hand and not even use the machine. Or sometimes they would use other companies' machines. Or sometimes they would even take the blood, send it out to a lab like Quest Diagnostics to get the results, which is what they actually did to John Carreyou when he first visited Theranos. So that's how she was fooling them. Even people who should have known better. So my last question, how did she think she was going to get away with it? Now, this is pretty obvious that I'm not going to be able to answer it 
Nobody else is going to be able to answer it. Nobody except for Elizabeth Holmes herself can really answer that question. But the more I read about this, the more I learn about this case, the less I believe it was a full-blown scam. At first, I was under the impression that she was just full-blown scammer. It was bullshit from the beginning, like Ponzi and Madoff. That it was never, there was never any legitimacy to it. That it was always bilk. That it was always fraud. But I don't know that I believe that anymore. I don't believe that it started as a lie. I believe she actually thought what she was trying to do was possible. I really believe that she thought she was going to change the world. So many interviews of her talking about it. I think she believed it. There's just too many accounts of her filling notebooks with ideas. Like, listen, listen to this quote. Both of these things. Elizabeth didn't actually drop out of Stanford until the following fall after returning from a summer internship at the Genome Institute in Singapore. Asia had been ravaged earlier in 2003 by the spread of a previously unknown illness called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS. And Elizabeth had spent the summer testing patient specimens obtained with old, low-tech methods like syringes and nasal swabs. The experience left her convinced that there must be a better way. When she got back home to Houston, she sat down at her computer for five straight days, sleeping one or two hours a night and eating from trays of food her mother brought her, drawing from new technologies she had learned about during her internship and in Robertson's classes. She wrote a patent application for an arm patch that would simultaneously diagnose medical conditions and treat them. I believe this is true. I believe that she went over there. She saw something, even if it was just saw an opportunity to create a new technology, and she became obsessed with it. And she came up with this idea of the patch. And she presents the patch, and people like Robertson are blown away. Wow, you're mixing things together. The way I haven't, it's one of the things he said. She mixed together things that I'd never seen mixed together. And Shanuk Roy, her co-founder, who was also a classmate, wasn't super impressed, but he was impressed that Channing Robertson was impressed. And that's how he got on board. But he became kind of the voice of reason. And he's the one that would point out to her, like, okay, you got to face reality. First of all, the patch, I don't think it should do diagnostics and treatment. Diagnostics is hard enough. Let's just focus on that problem for now. Let's just solve the diagnostic problem. Let's not try to do both of those. So she would concede. And then he would also tell her that the patch isn't going to work. It's just with the current level of physics, it's not going to work in a patch. We've got to make a machine. So then she would go, okay. And she would concede. And he'd say, it's got to be this kind of machine. She'd say, no, I want it to be small and portable like a glucose machine. And he'd say, yeah, we can't do it that small. We can make it kind of portable, but it's not going to be that portable. So then she would concede. And the fact that she's continually conceding these things like this is somebody facing realities. That's not somebody who thought something was bullshit the whole time. That's somebody who had a vision and is being faced with the realities and the limitations of their vision. I think what she was doing later was actually trying to cover the gaps and the errors in the vision, that this thing is not working out. But I think she thought it was just temporary. Like, yeah, we're lying. We got to cover this up. We got to hide this. We got to lie. But I think she thought eventually they were going to get the technology to work. And then none of it would matter, right? If it worked and she changed the world, then all those little lies and cover-ups that she did wouldn't matter. And I think that's how she was thinking. That's why I don't think it's necessarily full-on fraud. 
She was definitely lying and she was technically legally fraudulating her investors. But I don't think it was the whole plan. I think the whole plan was to actually make the damn thing work and that she was covering up to make that happen. She was faking it until she made it. And then she would lie. You know, oh, this is used in hospitals and this is being used in, in Apache helicopters and being used by the army so that she could get more money because she thought if she, the more money she got, the better chance she had to actually make this thing work. She can get more scientists and she could get more minds in there who could make this thing work. But you remember what they say. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. That's what happened. She kept having to spin more and more lies. And eventually she got wrapped up in it because it wasn't happening. It wasn't coming true. So she got to such a point where she's so wrapped up in all the lies that she had to create to cover up for the gaps in this thing that she realized that the only way out of this was through it. And that's the phrase we say, the only way out is through. So she had to keep lying and she had to keep pushing because here's another aphorism, fortune favors the bold. And that's the thing. All the damn aphorisms out there about success, they say the same type of shit. Fake it till you make it. Keep pushing. The only way out is through. Fortune favors the bold. And it makes sense. If you succeed, like, yes, that is a wonderful advice. It's worth the risk. But what happens if you don't succeed? What happens from all that boldness? I think that's what we're looking at right here. It's kind of like love. You know, all the crazy shit you do for love? It's incredibly romantic if the person you're doing it to loves you back. If they don't, it's creepy. Leaving notes on cars, showing up at her work, waiting for her on the front porch in the rain, holding the stereo outside of her window. All those same actions, if she doesn't like you, make you look like a psycho stalker. They're all the exact same actions. The perception is the difference. So what do you think? Was she a scammer from the start? From a little bit that I've told you and maybe a little bit that you know or a lot of bit that you know? Or was she someone who was willing to lie because she thought it was the only chance to make the thing that she was doing work? Does she deserve to go to jail? Is there a charge that isn't innocence but isn't fraud either? And what is that charge? How long does she deserve to go to jail? If she deserves to go to jail, Obviously, I'm going to keep reading the book. We're probably going to talk about it again from different angles. But that's kind of where I am on that right now. I'm completely wrapped up in it. I love it. I don't know why. It's not something I've ever been interested in before. Sometimes things just capture you. So let me know what you think. Go to itmattersbutitdoesn't.com forward slash contact. Use contact form. Answer some of those questions. You can use the answering machine. Leave a message at one six six nine. 245-6098. You can also use Twitter at the real channel. Yes, I am posting there again. I'm playing around with it again. I'm trying not to spend a lot of time there, but I'm trying to be active somewhere. And if you're a patron, you can always just message me on Patreon. Some people prefer that as well. Thank you to all my patrons. I love you guys. Thank you for your support. If anybody out there is interested in becoming a patron, you can do that. Patreon.com forward slash Chad Hall, get access to the bonus audio behind the scenes stuff that I was kind of talking about. And I've been doing some voicemails while I'm on walks, little short voicemails. I'm trying not to flood the Patreon with stuff. This is one thing that I've discovered 
in my own experience supporting other podcasts is it's very easy to overwhelm people with bonus content to where they actually don't want to be patrons anymore. I don't know if that's just me, but I had so much stuff coming in where I was like, you know what? I don't know if I dig this enough to listen to it three times a week. <laughs> so therefore I canceled my Patreon. I don't know if you guys feel that way, but I've been trying to think about that as well. Not just fill it up with bloat. So like I said, want to be a patron, go over to patreon.com forward slash chat hall. If you liked this episode, do me a favor, share this episode. And if you are an overcast user, I've been forgetting to say this, hit that star. For some odd reason, we've been ranking in the arts category in overcast this week. I think we were like number 30 in arts. Oddly, that put us above the Paris Review podcast. And the Paris Review is like one of the best arts magazines in the world. So that was kind of cool. This is nice to be next to them, to be honest. So stars, share, give it to somebody who's going to be into it. Anything else you want to look at, you can go over to ItMattersButItDoesn't.com. Don't forget to check out my other podcast that I do monthly with my friend Lamb. Conversation between him and I. Random Notes. And the show is called Random Madassery. And uh, photos, send me photos, send me photos of those payphones. If you see a payphone in the world or the remnants of a payphone in the world, take a picture because that is a dinosaur. Take a picture, post it, tag me. I want to see it. You can even private message me if you have something like Patreon where you want to send me something privately or DM me on Twitter. I'm cool with that too. I just want to see the damn pictures. I'm going to save them. Maybe I'll make a coffee table book one day. All right. Before we get out of here. Ooh, let me look at that. Somehow I seem to have put more content in this week and we're getting out of here a little bit faster. Maybe those grouping those sections is helping me a little bit. I don't know. All right. Before we get out of here, as always, remember, be kind, be bold without lying, and never forget, I love you, papers. Mm -hmm.